Around noon on November 9, 1923, Adolf Hitler led thousands of people through the streets of Munich. The night before, he had staged a coup against the leaders of the Bavarian state government. The leaders had escaped and labeled him and the Nazis as criminals. Now, his only hope was to incite a popular revolt. If enough people backed him, the authorities would have no choice but to give Hitler control. Arm in arm with his fellow protesters, Hitler approached a police cordon. The mob had overwhelmed one blockade already, but unlike the others, these officers refused to budge. The crowd pushed up against the barriers. If the police wouldn't let them through, they'd have to take matters into their own hands. The officers held firm. They were prepared to defend their post at all costs. The situation seemed at an impasse until someone fired a gun. All hell broke loose. In a hail of gunfire from both sides, the outgunned and disorganized Nazis had no chance. Before he became the next casualty, Hitler tucked his tail and ran away. The remaining Nazis who survived the firefight were taken into custody. Hitler's violent power grab ended in a prison sentence. He spent nine months behind bars for treason. And he used the time to pen his infamous manifesto, Mein Kampf. The Nazis would rise again. And next time, they wouldn't fail. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. For our first six episodes, we're exploring the lives of World War II's major dictators, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're diving into our third and final World War II dictator, Adolf Hitler. In this week's episode, we'll chart his rise to power from starving street artist to the leader of the Third Reich. Next week, we'll examine Hitler's leadership following the invasion of Poland in 1939, the horrific genocide of the Holocaust, and his eventual suicide on April 30th, 1945. There is no name more synonymous with the word dictator than Adolf Hitler. It immediately evokes the image of his drawn, angry face. A small mustache above the pursed, tense lips, made all the more frightening by piercing blue eyes. Today, unpopular politicians from both sides of the aisle are frequently compared to Hitler. 
overreaching or controversial governmental policies are described as Nazi-like. But in truth, no recent American politician has come close to espousing Hitler's despicable beliefs. No political party has committed such unspeakable, horrific atrocities as the Nazis. The questions surrounding Hitler and his despotic reign can be framed in one simple word. How? And yet, the answer is much, much more complicated. Many historical figures have their entire lives meticulously charted from birth to death. But with Adolf Hitler, that isn't the case. There is very little concrete information on Hitler's early life. Part of that is by design. Before he died, Hitler ordered for all papers from his youth to be destroyed. He didn't want anything interfering with the mythological status he had created for himself. But part of it is due to the fact that young Hitler simply wasn't remarkable in any way, shape, or form. He was born on April 20th, 1889 in Braunau, Austria. His family was decidedly middle class. Though not rich, he wasn't forced to beg for spare change on the street either. The only thing that wasn't average about Hitler's upbringing was the overabundance of love his mother showered him with. Imbued with intense self-belief, Hitler was a natural leader. Even when he played soldier with his friends, he took on the role of commander. But in September 1900, 11-year-old Hitler got a harsh dose of reality when his family moved from the countryside to the urban center of Linz. Rather than rise to the occasion, Hitler struggled to integrate with his more well-heeled classmates. As his grades plummeted, Hitler found solace in an organization called the Germanic School Association. It was part of the larger pan-Germanic movement, which promoted German people as superior to all others. As a native German speaker, Hitler was attracted to the idea that he was somehow naturally better than his higher-achieving cosmopolitan peers. However, his misplaced superiority complex did little to help his grades. By the fall of 1905, 16-year-old Hitler dropped out of school. His mother made no effort to push his life along. Instead, Hitler spent the next two years reading, painting, and idly strolling along the banks of the Danube River. Freed from the restrictive shackles of schoolwork, Hitler fully bought into his immutable self-belief. He became convinced that he was destined for greatness, specifically as an artist. In 1907, 18-year-old Hitler moved to the Austrian capital of Vienna with the intention of enrolling in the Academy of Fine Arts. He failed. Today, a popular late-night discussion centers around the question of whether or not someone would go back in time to kill Hitler as a baby. But for those who wouldn't be willing to kill a defenseless infant, they could prevent Hitler's rise by bribing the admissions office to let him into art school. Indeed, had Hitler been a more talented artist, he may have never gone down the path he did, and the world would look very different. However, there's no changing the past. 
Instead of realizing his ambition, Hitler became bitter at being denied his inherent greatness. Although he managed to eke out a living selling basic paintings of Vienna's landmarks, Hitler never ascended to the artistic heights he thought he could achieve. Rather than looking inward to confront his failure, Hitler blamed the bureaucratic apparatus that supported the academy. If it wasn't for the corrupt, incompetent civil servants at the school, his real talent would have been recognized. Many historians have postulated that Hitler latched onto anti-Semitism as a coping mechanism for his artistic failure. He certainly wouldn't have been the only person in Vienna to use Jewish people as a scapegoat for their own struggles. At the time, anti-Semitism was rampant throughout all of Europe. Because of draconian policies preventing Catholics from money lending, many Jewish people worked in the financial sector. Although this is an oversimplification, they became an easy target whenever people's fortunes took a turn for the worse. Many Austrians resented Jewish immigrants for their wealth and ability to ascend through society faster than they could. Playing upon this fear, Vienna's mayor, Karl Luger, often espoused slogans like, Greater Vienna must not become Greater Jerusalem. Like Hitler, Luger was also a proud member of the Pan-Germanic movement. Despite being the capital of Austria, Vienna was closely linked with Germany, and many of its citizens spoke German. As such, another of Luger's favorite slogans was, Vienna is German and must remain German. These slogans were music to Hitler's ears, but he couldn't wait around until Luger's vision came to fruition. Convinced he would never find success in Vienna, 24-year-old Hitler departed for Munich, Bavaria in 1913. Munich would offer him opportunities that Vienna couldn't. He didn't get much of a chance to establish himself. On June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated and Europe descended into war. Even though he was Austrian, Hitler rushed to enlist in the Bavarian army. Austria was fighting as well, but he felt more affinity towards his adopted country. Normally, he wouldn't have been allowed to join the Bavarian army. But it seems that in the rush of new soldiers, Hitler's true citizenship was overlooked. Fighting in World War I was a transformative experience for Hitler. It filled him with a sense of purpose and pride. Serving as a dispatch runner, he wasn't constantly in the trenches, but his job was extremely dangerous. He suffered several injuries on the battlefield and even received the prestigious Iron Cross for his services. Convinced the German Empire was on the path to victory, Hitler boasted in 1915 that at the war's conclusion, his adopted country would be cleansed of foreignness. He was wrong. As the war dragged on, domestic support for the conflict waned. It was clear the German forces were outmatched, and with all the resources going towards the armed forces, civilians suffered through food shortages. Upset that they were suffering for a war they weren't even going to win, citizens across the German Empire staged general strikes. With the country in disarray, Germany's supreme military commander, Erich von Ludendorff, 
helped transform the government from an imperial monarchy into a constitutional democracy. However, he didn't do it for humanitarian reasons. Ludendorff's thinking was that if a civilian government surrendered to the Allies, the blame for the defeat would be directed at them, and the reputation of Germany's military would remain intact. Known as the Weimar Republic, this new government's legislation was run by a democratic body known as the Reichstag. In turn, the German president would appoint a chancellor from the best-represented party to oversee the Reichstag. Just as Ludendorff hoped, the new government surrendered to the Allies in the fall of 1918, and avowed nationalists like Hitler blamed their new representatives. But they weren't the only ones to catch the nationalists' ire. They also blamed the so-called Jewish shirkers, who had stabbed their great nation in the back. This anti-Semitic theory posited that rather than support their country's war effort, the Jewish people in Germany had tried to profit from it. It was completely baseless, akin to conspiracy theories about the so-called deep state. But for Hitler, it was the perfect excuse for why Germany lost the war. And losing the war came with severe consequences. The Treaty of Versailles, which officially ended World War I, imposed severe penalties on Germany. Apart from severely reducing the German military, the treaty obligated them to pay massive reparations to the winning side. This would be difficult since the treaty also seized about 10% of Germany's land, and that relatively small territory was responsible for a large part of the country's coal and iron production. Upon his return to Munich on November 21, 1918, 30-year-old Hitler was faced with a city in crisis. While the nascent government was struggling to negotiate the treaty, Munich was gripped by communist uprisings. Like many European countries after World War I, Germans were disillusioned with the capitalist system that had contributed to the conflict. But unlike in Russia, the German communists were unable to successfully execute their revolution. Hitler was not amongst this doomed proletariat. In fact, after the communists were defeated in the spring of 1919, he was assigned to a three-man panel in charge of investigating soldiers who had participated in the brief insurrection. His efforts attracted the attention of an ambitious intelligence officer named Karl Meyer. Captain Meyer's job was to spread anti-Bolshevik propaganda through the army. Hitler would be just the man to help him do it. Hitler was assigned as an instructor for anti-Bolshevik propaganda classes in August 1919. He gave lectures with titles like Very Social and Economic Political Catchphrases, and people loved listening to him. From the onset of Hitler's young political career, his rhetoric relied on anti-Semitism. During these initial lectures, he spoke about the Jewish question, which referred to the place Jewish people should have in European society. If it was up to Hitler, they wouldn't have one at all. Hitler had fully bought into the idea that the Jewish community was responsible for all of society's ills. From the loss of World War I to the communist uprisings, he referred to Judaism as Jewish Bolshevism. 
Although he had yet to suggest a systematic genocide, he was determined to expel every single Jewish person from Germany. For the moment, he proposed to do it via legal means. If Hitler had his way, Jewish people's rights would be so restricted that they would practically be forced to leave. Some have questioned whether Hitler's anti-Semitism was genuine or if he was merely using Jewish people as a convenient scapegoat. But all indications point to him being sincere. And that's what made him so compelling to people. He was so sure of himself that it was hard not to take his convictions seriously. Hitler's appeal wasn't lost on him. Interested in diving further into politics, he joined the newly formed German Workers' Party, or DAP, in September 1919. Though it was little more than a drinking group that met at various Munich beer halls, the right-wing nationalistic DAP was the perfect platform for Hitler to shape his image. Hitler's August lectures had given him a reputation as a talented speaker. Over 100 people crammed into a beer hall for his first public speech in mid-September. The attendees watched in fascination as Hitler pontificated for hours on end. The longer he spoke, the more agitated he became. By the time Hitler really got going, his sweat-drenched face was beet red, spittle frothed in the corners of his mouth. And the audience was right there with him. He was saying what they felt inside, but couldn't put into words. In his early DAP speeches, Hitler particularly focused on the Treaty of Versailles, which had crippled the German economy following World War I. Usually, he placed the blame squarely on Jewish people's shoulders. Hitler's popularity quickly made him into the DAP's star attraction. Some 2,000 people showed up to hear him give a speech on February 24, 1920. That same day, he officially reformed the DAP as the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or NSDAP. In the ensuing years, they'd come to be known as the Nazis. And before long, they'd be powerful enough to challenge for complete control of one of Germany's biggest states. Coming up, Hitler flexes his political muscle. Now, back to the story. In early 1920, 30-year-old Adolf Hitler had finally found his calling. His public speaking abilities made him the star of the rapidly growing Nazi party. In January 1920, the Nazis had only 190 registered members. By May, it was 675. By the beginning of 1921, the ranks had swelled to over 2,500. And it was largely due to Hitler's rapturous public speeches. Even in his earliest speeches, Hitler hinted at what was to come once he took power. In order to restore Germany to its former greatness, he believed it had to become an ethnically homogenous state. In an August 1920 speech titled, Why Are We Anti-Semites?, he claimed that Jewish people were to blame for Germany's poor economy. He said they were little more than parasites feeding off the honest work of real Germans. 
To save Germany, they had to foment anti-Semitism throughout the country. The speech was a wild success. The police report from the event stated that the audience interrupted Hitler's two-hour speech 56 times with massive applause. Hitler's ability to unify Germans under a banner of hate made him a valuable commodity to the Nazis, and he knew it. When he first helped found the party, Hitler had to share power with a larger executive committee under the authority of party chairman Anton Draxler. Tired of answering to others, Hitler leveraged his popularity to take sole power over the Nazis on July 29, 1921. That day, Hitler officially became the Führer, or guide, of the Nazi party. From that moment on, every decision they made went through him and him alone. To solidify his newfound power, Hitler founded a paramilitary organization within the Nazis called the SA, better known as the Stormtroopers. Dressed in a brown uniform accentuated by a bright red swastika armband, the so-called brown shirts didn't hesitate to make their presence known throughout Munich. Nominally, the SA were a gymnastics and sports division. In reality, they were Hitler's personal battering ram. In addition to protecting Nazi events, they disrupted other political parties' meetings and would frequently beat up Jewish people on the streets. They faced little resistance from the police. Many of them were probably Nazis themselves. Although Hitler didn't hold any political office, the creation of the SA essentially gave him free reign over Munich. His fierce nationalism, enforced by his stormtroopers' violent anti-Semitism, was an alluring cocktail. By the end of 1922, the Nazi party had over 20,000 registered members. And events in Italy that October would show Hitler what he could do with a sizable base. On October 29, 1922, Benito Mussolini and his fascist party seized control of Italy. The direct, centralized system he implemented was exactly what Hitler wanted for his own country. During a rally in November, Hitler called for the formation of a national government along fascist lines in Germany. Like Mussolini in Italy, only Hitler had the singular vision to save their nation and restore it to its former greatness. As historian Ludolf Herbst put it, it was the Nazis' invention of a German messiah. Hitler fully bought into his fabricated mythos. And as conditions in Germany deteriorated, his star rose even further. Thanks to the overwhelming reparations payments demanded by the Treaty of Versailles, by the beginning of 1923, the German economy was on the verge of complete collapse. Inflation was so rampant that people had to carry wheelbarrows full of money just to pay for basic necessities. With more disillusioned citizens joining the Nazis by the day, Hitler decided the time was ripe to make a power play. However, it was still too early to take aim at the national government. First, the Nazis would seize control of the state of Bavaria, and from there, they'd take on all of Germany. 
With popular wartime general Erich Ludendorff by his side, Hitler was finally ready to strike in November 1923. Ludendorff was still influential with the military. Hitler was confident that when the time came, Ludendorff could convince them to join the Nazis' side. Hitler's coup was set for November 8th. That night, Bavaria's highest-ranking officers were scheduled to give a speech at one of the city's massive beer halls. Scores of state officials would be in attendance. Pistol in hand, Hitler stormed into the beer hall at 8.45 p.m. with hundreds of angry stormtroopers at his back. Holding the statesmen at gunpoint, he proclaimed himself the new leader of Bavaria. Everything was going according to plan. Despite the takeover's hostile nature, the spectators in the building during the so-called Beer Hall Putsch took Hitler's side. Confident that General Ludendorff could handle things from there, Hitler departed to oversee the seizure of the local military barracks. But after Hitler left, Ludendorff foolishly allowed the Bavarian officials to go as well. They promised they would honor their agreement to place Hitler in charge. Of course, they didn't keep the promise. The moment they left, the Bavarian leaders headed for Munich's military headquarters. As it turned out, Ludendorff's support for the coup wasn't enough to turn the tide. With the military backing them, the Bavarians sent out a radio transmission denying that they had transferred their authority to Hitler. Refusing to surrender, Hitler and Ludendorff organized a march to the city center. Their only hope was to turn so many of Munich's citizens to their side that the government would be forced to transfer power. By the time they reached the main square, thousands of onlookers had joined the Nazis' ranks. As they continued through the city, the swelling crowd encountered a police cordon. It's not quite clear what happened next, but at some point, the protesters and the police exchanged fire. Hitler was at the front of the procession. The man marching next to him took a bullet and died. Hitler escaped with his life, but the police caught up with him a few days later. When he was arrested on November 11th, he went without a struggle. The failed power grab took all the fight out of Hitler. As he awaited trial, he contemplated suicide. He went so far as to go on a hunger strike, but he lacked the conviction to see it through to the end. With their leader behind bars, the Nazi party floundered. Hitler still had significant support in Munich, but there wasn't anyone strong enough to unify his followers. Their lack of organization restored Hitler's belief in himself. He was the only thing holding the German nationalist movement together. He brought that inner conviction to his trial on February 26, 1924. Held in Munich's first district court, the trial was a public spectacle. Every seat was full as Hitler's admirers jostled to get a good look at the Fuhrer. His fans weren't restricted to the gallery. One of Hitler's biggest supporters was the man overseeing the entire affair, Judge Georg Neidhardt. Judge Neidhardt allowed Hitler to run roughshod over the proceedings. The nominal defendant acted more like a prosecutor. 
In angry, long-winded speeches, Hitler defended his attempted coup. He claimed it wasn't possible for him to commit treason, since the current government was comprised of the national traitors of 1918. Acting against them was actually in the public interest. When the trial finally came to an end on April 1st, Hitler received the minimum punishment of a five-year prison sentence. With good behavior, it could be reduced to a mere six months. Furthermore, Hitler's confinement in the Landsberg prison was more like a vacation than a punishment. The security was laughable. The only thing stopping Hitler from walking out the front door was that it was better PR to serve out his abbreviated sentence. The time alone allowed Hitler to reflect on his rise to power thus far. He realized that his fatal mistake in the Beer Hall Putsch was that he had insisted on acting outside the traditional government apparatus. Instead of trying to overthrow the system, he resolved to infiltrate it and reshape it in his own image. Hitler also knew that he had a reputation for being more of a rabble-rouser than a true political visionary. To that end, he used his time behind bars to create his political manifesto, Mein Kampf. Over 15 chapters and two volumes, Hitler outlined his vision in horrifying detail. He divided humanity into tiers of dominance. The fair-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryan reigned over all. At the bottom were the Jewish and the Slavic people. This belief was the foundation for Hitler's two major platforms, eradicating Jewish people from German society and expanding the nation's borders into Eastern Europe. Writing Mein Kampf occupied most of Hitler's time during his incarceration. By the time he was released on December 20, 1924, the 35-year-old demagogue had largely completed his self-proclaimed masterpiece. With manuscript in hand, Hitler returned to Munich. Although the Beer Hall Putsch had failed, he was undaunted. This time, he wouldn't stop until he had all of Germany in his clutches. Coming up, Hitler maneuvers his way to the top of the German government. Now, back to the story. When 35-year-old Adolf Hitler was released from his nine-month prison sentence in December 1924, he had a tall task ahead of him. After his failed power grab, the Nazi party had been banned in large swaths of Germany. Although he still had a large base of supporters, many of them were hesitant to rejoin the Nazi cause. Making matters more difficult, the German economy had made significant strides while Hitler was incarcerated. On the surface, this was a good thing. But for the Nazis, it was a disaster. One of their main talking points was how the democratic central government had run the country into the ground. Now, that was no longer the case. Germany was making progress in foreign relations as well. Before, the Treaty of Versailles had crippled the country with unrealistic reparations payments. But the creation of the Dawes Plan in 1924 adjusted the payments in accordance with the current state of the German economy. 
Under the current conditions, jumping right into the fray could doom the Nazi movement before it could get back off the ground. Hitler had to wait until the time was right, until the German economy took another nosedive. While he waited, the first order of business was to get the ban on the Nazi party lifted. Hat in hand, he visited the Bavarian state president in early January 1925. Convinced that Hitler's contrition for the beer hall putsch was sincere, the president agreed to lift the ban. He was the first of many who would underestimate Hitler. Hitler's next step was to get rid of the gaggle of rivals who had scrambled to fill the power vacuum he left in the wake of his arrest. First and foremost was General Erich Ludendorff, who had managed to escape from the Beer Hall Putsch scot-free. But instead of attacking Ludendorff, Hitler endorsed him. After the German president unexpectedly died on February 28, 1925, an emergency election was held to replace him. Hitler threw his full support behind Ludendorff. It was a perfectly calculated gambit. In the current political climate, Ludendorff's nationalist platform didn't stand a chance. In the first round of voting on March 24th, he received only 1.1% of the vote. The result was so humiliating that Ludendorff's political career never recovered. One by one, Hitler dealt with the other wolves who stood in his way. He shunted stormtrooper commander Ernst Röhm off to the side. He overcame Gregor Strasser, who was largely responsible for growing the Nazi movement outside of Munich. By the annual party conference on May 22, 1926, nobody was left to oppose Hitler. He was reconfirmed as the Nazis' chairman with no argument. But there was still a long way to go before the Nazis returned to their former heights. They didn't achieve their 1923 number until March 1927, when the party reached 57,477 members. Despite the low numbers, Hitler remained confident. When things inevitably took a turn for the worse, the Nazis would seize the moment. His patience was rewarded in early 1929. Wages weren't rising fast enough to match soaring prices. Unemployment skyrocketed, going from 650,000 in September 1928 to 3 million by the new year. Interest in the Nazi party rose accordingly. At the annual rally in August 1929, between 40 and 100,000 people attended. A few months later, one of the darkest days in global history gave Hitler the boost he needed to transform the Nazis into a national movement. October 24, 1929, was the day that triggered the Great Depression. Known as Black Friday, the collapse of the American stock market had an immediate effect on the German economy. In his speeches over the next few months, Hitler placed the blame squarely on the parliamentary government's shoulders. Its reliance on foreign capital and emphasis on special interests was responsible for their declining economy. 
Much of the blame also fell on German-Jewish people, who Hitler claimed were using the current crisis for personal profit. It was a reassuring salve for those looking for a scapegoat. During a speech in Munich on August 10, 1930, Hitler's anti-Semitic invective was greeted with chants of Out with the Jews in Germany. It was a highly successful strategy. In national elections held on September 14th, the Nazis won a healthy 18.3% of the vote. They were awarded 107 seats in Parliament, an increase of 95 seats from the previous election. They were still far from a majority, but the election results proved that the Nazis had become a legitimate political power. Ignoring rules against wearing uniforms during parliamentary sessions, all 107 Nazi deputies showed up for their first meeting on October 13, 1930, clad in the party's brown shirts and swastika armbands. While they debated, euphoric Nazi supporters rioted through the streets of Berlin, smashing the windows of Jewish-owned department stores. The electoral success led to unprecedented enrollment in the Nazi party. By the end of 1931, they had a powerful base of 806,394 members. In March of that year, the Nazis opened a massive new headquarters in Munich. Referred to as the Brown House, it was a former palace that physically embodied Hitler's newfound influence. An entire corner was dedicated to the Führer's office. Adorned with a bust of Benito Mussolini, it was a reminder to all who visited where Hitler's ultimate ambition rested. The complete control of the German government. In the July 1932 parliamentary elections, the Nazis won a decisive victory. They took a massive 37.3% of the vote winning a whopping 230 seats. They were unquestionably the most powerful party in Germany. The question was whether President Hindenburg would appoint Hitler as chancellor. Even though the post usually went to a representative of the strongest party, Hindenburg wasn't obligated to do so. Fearing that Hitler would abuse the office, Hindenburg was reluctant to hand him so much power. But Hitler was stubborn. It was the chancellorship or nothing. And so, it was nothing. Hindenburg refused to give in to Hitler. Instead, current chancellor Franz von Papen would retain his post. However, he wouldn't keep it for long. Hitler's resistance made it difficult for Papen to form a working government. Unable to make any real progress, he resigned his post by November. Still. Hindenburg refused to appoint Hitler. Instead, he gave the chancellorship to his closest political advisor, Kurt von Schleicher. The move incensed former Chancellor Papen. Schleicher was his mentor. He felt like he had been stabbed in the back. He was determined to get the last laugh, no matter the cost. On January 4, 1933, Papen arranged a secret meeting with Hitler. Together, the two men came up with a plan. Papen still had Hindenburg's ear, 
he would convince the president to finally name Hitler chancellor. The only reason President Hindenburg had refused to give Hitler the chancellorship was because he feared the Nazis would take complete control of the government, not because he disagreed with their policies. So, in order to keep the Nazis in check, the trustworthy Papen would serve as vice-chancellor. Each man was happy with the arrangement. Hitler would finally get the position he had coveted for so many years, and Papen would triumph over Schleicher. What's more, Papen was actually confident that he'd be able to mitigate Hitler's radical views. As long as he had enough allies in the ruling cabinet, he was certain that Hitler would be little more than a puppet. He was wrong. Once Hitler had control of the chancellorship, he would never let it go. And it wouldn't be long until he set his sights on even greater power. Thanks for listening to Dictators. In next week's episode, we'll examine the horrifying policies Hitler implemented upon seizing power. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Dictators, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Dictators was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. 